0: Hello, I'm Juliette Littman. And I am Joe House. Welcome to Ringer Food, the Ringer's new hub for all your food-related content. You may have known this feed as House of Carbs, and don't worry, that's not totally going away. We will be launching two new shows on the feed and the first is Food News with me and David Jacoby. You may remember us from our days at Grantland while Jacoby and I are back to go over the news, sample snacks, share some personal tales of food news, some global tales of food news. Who knows what else is to come? And House, what are you going to be doing?
1: Oh, my taste buds, my hungry homies, my culinary comrades, we are back. We've done it. Here to tell you that we are reigniting House of... Carbs with a whole new slate of tasty episodes throughout the year. We are starting with a football fracas, a gridiron gobble fest. We're doing NFL playoff potluck featuring taste tests of the iconic food item or items of every playoff city to determine which city reigns supreme.
0: Ringer food is starting up this Wednesday, January 12th. That's so soon. So be sure to subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app, and you're good to go.
1: This episode is brought to you by Lululemon, guys. If you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I need to staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome
0: to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at therigger.com and joining me on the other line, does he look like he's in Oklahoma? It's Andy World. Yeah, it's a joke from Euphoria, man. It's a show about teenagers. Maybe you should watch it. You know, maybe you should get a little bit more connected to youth culture in this country because they're the future.
2: It's rough. I am not connected to Euphoria, a popular television show. Yeah, I am not connected to Ozark, uh, arguably more popular television show. Who can say this is my fallow period? I am feeling like I'm failing the listeners of the Watch. I'm failing the larger uh, uh, TV diaspora, and most of all, I'm failing you, Chris, because you, Chris. As one of the more important hosts of the Ringer's number one television podcast, the Prestige Television Podcast, you watch all this stuff.
0: I do. I watch it all because I love television. That's why I, I'm, I'm embarking on this journey. First number one priority is for you. I like hanging out with Kaya. Number two <laughs> yeah, is agree. you're my best friend. And number three, mm-hmm. I love TV. I think TV, it's a it's capable of having fallow periods. I don't think we're in one right now, though.
2: And no, no. I, I, and I think I, I'm I'm missing the boat. So talk to me about the boats before we get into all the other stuff we have on our agenda today. Well, Where sure. Are we with-
0: I'll talk to you about whatever you want. I mean, like, so with Euphoria, I wanted to ask you, because like, as... Mm. And pull up a... Seat as a father of game. daughters? Oh, boy. Well, as, as a father <laughs> of a television show, last night mm. in Euphoria, yeah. great episode. Maybe like one of my favorite episodes they've ever done. Uh-huh. I'm not going to get into like spoilers or anything. First of all, did you do you know who Dominic Fike is? I'm really... Dating myself, but he plays this kid named Elliot on the show. He's already like a big musician. He's like a documentary about him up today on Hulu, and like he's very important to lots of people. But I'm like, this dude is going to be like a huge star if he wants to be like as far as being an actor. He's he's great on the show this season. They're doing this thing right now where they basically are doing these ten minute short films at the beginning that are the cold open of Euphoria. So last night was the backstory for. Cal, who's played by Eric Dane, is one of the fathers in the show. Uh, actually, there's not very many fathers in the show, but he is the one, and is that, he, he is gets that a, the, l-
2: Is that the problem of Euphoria? Is it a, is it a fatherless <laughs> That's is right. it a society? Is that There's not a wow.
0: strong male role model yeah. in, in Euphoria. What a um, take. Um, so anyway, they do this flashback short film. These are really fun. They're really good. They, they started the first, the first episode had an awesome one, and this one has one. And I had to ask you this, because... I'm watching it last night with my wife and I'm just like, this is, this is, this is good. And then we just kind of like a second later are like, yo, they've already used, it's set in the eighties. And I'm like, they've already used half of in excess's kick album <laughs> as far as like needle God. drops. And yeah. I just want to run through this with you. And you tell me because you, you are a man who has negotiated in some degree. Yeah. The, like I need to get like this song. What am I talking about here? This episode just alone had Never Let Me Down Again by Depeche Mode, Need You Tonight by Inexcess, The Look by Roxette, It Ain't Over Till Damn. It's Over by Lenny Kravitz, Chains of Love by Erasure, Mystify by Inexcess, Lips Like Sugar by Echo and the Bunnymen, She Sells Sanctuary by The Cult. A lot. A Bobby Darren song, a Selena song, a ministry can I, can song. Can I ask you,
2: just sidebar? Was the episode set at the seventh grade dance at my school?
0: It might have well, let me tell you wow. something. If this was what your seventh grade dance was like, you have a lot of chapters of your life you've <laughs> neglected to share with me. Uh, it was it was a ba- basically about um, wow. a furtive love story between two mm. teenage boys, and then that that then ends abruptly. But um, Andy, how yeah. does a show like manage to get half of one of the biggest albums of the eighties on its soundtrack without costing Avatar money?
2: money i mean on, honestly it's it's money it, it if you have the budget for it almost every song is gettable i my experience doing the um picking the songs for briar patch was awesome but also surprising in that there were songs that we got that i was very concerned to even mention like i thought they would be very expensive i remember in a, in a later episode we used part of um do you remember the first time by pulp and like oh. that feels like a really big song and a big single and it wasn't cheap but it was not nearly as expensive as "I Have a Song to Sing" oh by Peter Paul and Mary, oh, <laughs> which nearly broke us. Um, so it it is very first off it can be artist driven. Like by far the most expensive artist that we got songs from was Dolly Parton, who mm-hmm. is apparently uh, infamously or famously just a hard drive her estate. Or she's not she's alive, but her publishing company, company. Publishing yeah. company drives a very very hard bargain for those songs. Other artists are gettable. And that's often, I think, less... I, I think the reason Dolly Parton's songs are expensive is because Dolly Parton controls her publishing. I think songs that you think of as being expensive that aren't expensive might be because a third party controls their publishing and is just trying to maximize Yeah, like that. Mark
0: Cuban owns the inaccess publishing and he's just like, come on in, sharks. Just to pay the luxury, luxury <laughs> yeah.
2: tax this year. Um, so I can't speak specifically to that. My main reaction to... My main reaction to everything... This was true before I made a show, and it's especially true having made a show. Um, when you tell me that something costs a lot of money, my next question is, is it on HBO? Right. <laughs> and then that's usually the end of the conversation with with yes. nothing but honestly, like, admiration for it. You know what I mean? I, I guess the only other thing I'd say is HBO always, you know, supports its creators, I think. Um, but these seem like season two flexes.
0: Yes. Well, also, it's pretty interesting to see, too, also, like, the 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 first, like... Five credits at the end of Euphoria. It's just like director, writer, creator, executive producer, all Sam Levinson. Yes. It's like it's a very auteur driven show. I watched, I so I watch Euphoria. I watch a little bit of Ozark. We'll get to that at some point on this podcast, I promise. In the meantime, there's great stuff happening on the Prestige Pod about Ozark. I will say, I got knocked off my square by Ozark the first episode of season four because. Uh, I was watching it, and Jonah, the son, has my my same fleece that I have, <laughs> and I was like, Does that ever ha- "Has ever has ever happened to you where you like are looking at a television character and you're like, cuts a little close?"
2: <laughs> when it's when it's when it's the child.
0: <laughs> well, it's worse people to be than Jonah. He's very resourceful, you know. Like right. he 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 he's built up his own money laundering database over the course of of this series. So I'm really proud of him. And, you know, it's not like Patagonia fleeces are exactly like the rarest of grails. It's just <laughs> most people bought one during the pandemic, I would imagine. Well, but.
2: I-, I also think that you're selling yourself short. It was already established in our conversations about succession that you were ahead of your time as, you know, a- as being a layer king.
1: Yes. You know what I mean? Like, true.
2: I I think that for a long time, Pete characters' relationship to the weather was really binary, you know. It was either hot or cold. But that's yeah. not what lived experience is like for so many of us.
0: Especially I me, think,
2: <laughs> I know. And I think that I, I, I do think that 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 this is where we're we're heading. You know, I think we're seeing just a, a greater diversity of all characters on television, particularly those who are a little bit warm when it's cold out, and a little bit cold uh, when it when it's hot out. Right. So, um,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm currently wearing. Three layers just sitting here talking to you inside of my room. It just, it starts at three and then, and then we expand. I can't, I don't think I've ever gotten up to six, but I would be interested in the challenge.
2: Well, when you were, in, I mean, when we lived in New York and we spent a lot of time like waiting on subway platforms and stuff in the dead of winter, was it just we didn't feel things in our bodies then because we were like either like just, you know, experiencing <laughs> like we were, we were drinking or whatever, but also that we were like just younger? Because I don't remember you. Like I, basically, I, what I don't remember is, come, like in, a, in the in the dead of February, right? You walking into the Hi Fi Bar on Avenue A and suddenly turning into Michael Stipe at the MTV Video Music Awards when he wore twenty two issue based T shirts and took them off one after another. Like I don't remember that. I feel like you maybe <laughs> you were like, there the night when thing. it was like
0: pro choice, like just like <laughs> ripping off different T shirts. No.
2: I mean, I I don't think it would have been issues. You know what I mean? For, I feel like you, you would have had like June of 44 or like yeah, just like right. a bunch of like uh, right. 90s era math rock bands coming off. But do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think you were, you weren't that guy then.
0: No, I, I think that uh, generally speaking in the uh, early 2000s in New York, every single day wore a t-shirt, mm-hmm. some kind of like, vin- not vintage, but like thrift store shirt on top of that, a sweatshirt yeah. and, a je- and a jean jacket or some kind of jacket.
2: That's yeah. what I remember, and then you, we. I think every, we just moved faster outside, like we just walked faster. Yeah, brother. To be, to be <laughs> we to have be places less to go. Yeah. Also, and here's a, here's a side question, but I, I, I'm curious about this. I never asked you this at the time, so I feel like our public podcast is a forum oh, cool. for it. Um, what is the statute of limitations on when you drop the curtains on tattoos? Because I remember when you got arm tattoos, I feel uh-huh. like you you basically then wore tank tops. That's or not true like, at all. Or, or like you like pulled your sleeves up a lot for like a year or two, which I think I would do too.
0: I did. But like, why are you putting me on front street like that? I'm like, not, it, I'm just, I was, well, I was what I'm youthful, wondering is, you
2: know, you, you were youthful. You look cool. It yeah, going me be able to get
0: buried in a Jewish cemetery. You got to let me have something
2: out of the deal. <laughs> I'm not making mean? fun of your tattoos. I guess I was wondering was like in the dead of winter, would you still be like, I will cut cut the arms off of this like heavy insulated no no armor no no. no, no. What happens so, like, is you go right. into
0: a bar for your night long reverie, right? Right. And you know, back in New York, pre Mayor Mike, especially, we used to pack it in, and we used to get we a little did. smoky up in there. You know what I mean? We, we get hot. It was, you know, what the funny, like the craziest feeling would be walking into a bar at like 11 PM in New York city when it's like 30 degrees outside and your fucking glasses steam up immediately because there's so (laughs) much human energy on display. You know what I mean? Yeah. So by the time you get to like beer three or whatever you're doing, like, yeah, you might be down to a t-shirt in February and that's when people get to see the body art.
2: (laughs) So that's just plus
0: i only That's have two just very plus. tasteful tattoos i think
2: they're fantastic people don't understand i am a fan i i'm a supporter i've been i'm i'm I think day one the, for them the
0: naked lady uh in a corvette mm-hmm. has really aged well
2: yeah yeah let's with with, with the quote <laughs> let's drive loser <laughs> <laughs> right
0: um but get in spe-
2: no right
0: let me drive a little bit of this podcast i have a bunch of things i want to talk to you about we do okay. have some shows we want to discuss we were going to chat a little bit about 1883 yes and vigil because we wanted yes. to kind of pair those as uh the two paths tv shows not the only two paths but two paths tv shows can take in this day and age and especially like what you're building for so i, I have that in one bucket i want to talk
2: Okay. You're driving. (laughs) Chris is looking at me (laughs) with such terror in his eyes right now. I did want to mention one thing because when you mentioned early 2000s New York City bars, I have to give a shout out. to. You're so worried. It's talking to me about your body (laughs) art. Uh, The um, Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary, which premiered at Sundance. and I haven't seen it yet, Um, but it is based on our friend Lizzie Goodman's oral history. You and I both have our names in that book and we're we're proud of it. You say Um, my
0: name in that book. Yeah.
2: Of course I fucking say your name. I say your name everywhere I go, all public (laughs) and private spaces. Um, But I did want to just say, like, I I hope if anyone has gotten a chance to see it, message us and let us know because um, they reached out when when they were putting together Pulse Films, they reached out to me. This is like two or three years ago now. And they were like, do you have any archival stuff like that we could maybe mine? Because the, the conceit of the documentary is no talking heads. It's all like, Footage from the eras, era right. appropriate, talking you through the early 2000s rock scene in New York City. And I went, I went in the old, the old tape closet and I found all my old interview tapes and I mentioned a couple of things that I had. And the only thing that they were really interested in was my long sit down with James Murphy of LCD sound system for the, the seminal Spin Magazine article about Brooklyn. What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> Which featured a guy who lived in Park Slope. Interviewing James Murphy and Karen O, people who lived in Manhattan. Right. But anyway, uh, I did find this tape and they were like, we'd love to, you know, listen to that and send it. I was like, oh, okay. And I spent like, and I was like, I guess I should listen to this first. And I spent fives of minutes. Did you have
0: to ask the Guccione estate if it was okay to like <laughs> release this this document?
2: I thought about whether I probably like texted our buddy Steve Candel, who was like the last editor in chief of spin that we know about. And he was like, I don't even I'm just going to pretend you didn't ask me. So, sorry, I put you <laughs> on Front Street, Steve. I, I shared it with them. I, my, my my only point is, I, I felt like maybe I should listen to it before I sent it to them for this documentary. But I don't have a tape player because it was like 2018. So right. I was like, I'm sure it's fine. So I just sent it away and forgot about it. And then three years later, I got it back and they were like, thanks, mate, we used some of this.
0: You need to visit the set of yes. Euphoria and use their tape decks. Yes! Yeah. Um. So the... Mimi in the Bathroom is playing at Sundance.
2: Um, yeah, played at Sundance. You can watch do you it online.
0: So, this weekend, I watched uh, a phenomenal movie called Worst Person in the World. It's uh, oh. a new, the new film by one of my favorite directors, Joachim von Trier. He did reprise in um, Oslo. I think it's August 21st or August 21st. Oslo. I can't remember the, the name of the second one, but he's made a, a bunch of, of films. He made Louder Than Bombs with Jesse Eisenberg a few years ago. Uh, this is part of his Oslo trilogy, and it's an excellent movie, but I was just going to mention. That the Sundance Festival, you know, it's open to the public. Like you can you can buy a single ticket yeah. if you get the ticket in time. So I'm I'm gonna watch the Lena Dunham movie tonight. Uh, cool. It's it's pretty a pretty awesome experience. I don't want movie festivals to go anywhere, but it was pretty cool to be able to to just like pay 20 bucks, uh, which is like less than what I would have paid for two people to go to a movie theater anyway. And I, I do want to see this in a movie theater to see worst person at Sundance. It was a pretty cool experience.
2: Do you think that there's a future for that? Like, do you think that we'd be able to, like, attend the gala opening of something at Venice one day? Like, they'll sell well, limited online tickets I think for that things? that
0: kind of stuff, that real red carpet stuff, there, there's a lot of stipulations or rules with Sundance. Like, if you want to attend the Q&A, you know, right. the live Q&A, you have to, you know, be in the room or whatever by this time. I got the tickets for the second screening of Worst Person in the World, which means there was, like, a 24-hour window to watch it and once you hit play you had five hours to finish it so it created a little bit more of an event around watching it this actually goes towards something i want to talk about anyway but yeah like i don't think that will work for film festivals if they want to continue to be going uh, businesses but i do wonder whether or not let's say god forbid there is a bit of a collapse in that field of like some of the film festivals that we know and love like Sundance or or whatever have to like reconfigure themselves entirely for a digital world or whatever
2: mm-hmm.
0: to say nothing of the supply chain uh, of films you know what I mean like I don't know how many smaller you know independent dramas or independent films are going to be made that much you know going forward they may need to like reach out to to different audiences beyond the people who can get to Park City in, in January I
2: think it's a good point I the, the thing that you're, while you're describing this I'm thinking about like one of the best things to do in New York, if you're able, is to go to the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. I bet you didn't think that was coming. But I didn't think that. To go, I didn't think to go, that. I to go early. Yeah. Um, oh, to like the it, opening rounds. The opening rounds, because you walk around. The, the center court stuff is the center court stuff, and you see you know the big stars, and and um, it's very crowded. Like your, but your you,
0: favorite Novak Djokovic. I,
2: I just a, a dangerous thought leader that cannot be silenced. <laughs> Proud of him. Proud of him. Um, you walk around to all the small smaller courts, and you can just sit there and watch Amazing Tennis from the Stars of Tomorrow or the Stars of Yesterday or whatever. And it's fantastic. And I wonder if there is, I think people would bristle at this, but this idea of like a tiered film festival thing where obviously, yeah, like the new new Wes Anderson movie is going to open Venice or whatever. But Mm. all the small films that are just there to be seen, I mean, I can't imagine that they wouldn't want the opportunity to also have some tickets sold and to, you know, and that's sort of how like slam dance, started, right? It was like, it's not Sundance, but you can go to yeah. see some other movies at the same time.
0: But I would imagine maybe Sean would be the person to ask about this fantasy. Yeah. But like it, I, I would imagine that the whole purpose of going to a Sundance or to a Telluride or to whatever is a uh, uh, South by Southwest, especially is right. to create buzz and a market for your film that does not yet have a distributor, right? Yes. So you go and then you're like, everybody's talking about Palm Springs or everybody's talking about this and yes. they've sold it to Hulu or they've sold it to Amazon or they've sold it to A24 or whatever. And, you know, there's a little bit of like, if if anybody can go see the movie, if it's basically like these film festivals functioning yeah, as right. the quote unquote opening weekend for world cinema, you know, then I don't know whether or not, a, you know, are there so many people out there who are going to see worst person in the world? Although I will say, Word of mouth is word of mouth, no matter what. So, like, I'm going to tell anybody who wants to hear me talk about it that I thought Worst Person in the World was an incredible movie. I hope you see it. Like, we'll talk about it when you do. But
2: definitely, I, I guess it's also a question of um, when who controls a final finished product because often films are shown at film festivals and if they are then acquired, changes are made. Mm, yeah, you know, um, for sure. And 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 so the what's the final version of it? Anyway, it's an interesting question. I've interrupted you enough. You're driving. Let's get oh, no. into
0: it. So there was a couple of things just news-wise I thought we could get into. Uh, the biggest one was this thing I saw in Puck. So we've mentioned Matt Bellany writes for Puck. We mentioned a, a piece of his a couple of weeks ago. Julia Alexander wrote something uh, that went up today that's about the, uh, the objective and also anecdotal surge going on with HBO Max. Now, on Thursday, you and I discussed uh, some hiccups that Netflix was experiencing I think if you hold a lot of Netflix stock you might describe it as another word besides hiccup but Netflix came in below their projections in terms of subscriber base I think then their stock took a hit and uh you and I sort of discussed like where is this all going Ozark is kind of this last one of the last flagship shows it has um, along with The Crown and Stranger Things. And I, I'm sure people would debate what a flagship Squid Game now is, the flagship, but you get what I'm saying. So this t- today, there was this article that was basically about how HBO Max, despite everything, despite mm-hmm. the corporate merger, the at then at spinning it off to Discovery, uh, despite some issues with the um, player, the actual tech in the beginning, despite some of the hostility uh, Jason Kilar experienced from Hollywood when he announced a day of release HBO Max uh, streaming policy. Despite all that, we now get to the end of the year or the beginning of this year and HBO Max and HBO have had a, a very HBO-like run of success. Now, we can get into, is it success because you and I are talking about it and like people mm-hmm. who have podcasts and people who write for pop culture websites are talking about these shows or are they really, really big? But I will say in this house, uh, I'm currently watching Euphoria and Righteous Gemstones. We just got done Station 11. I love Southside, which is on HBO Max as a, as a library offering. I love uh, a bunch of stuff on there. And there, what was the other show that I'm watching that's on right now on HBO Max? Oh, Somebody Somewhere, the Bridget Everett show, which is really cool. So like I... I do think that they have this. Um, they they are definitely making shows that like I watch all the time. But it was an interesting thing to go through Julia's piece because I thought that the thing that jumped out at me most, and I thought we could start here. She she broke down a couple of like lessons you could learn from from their success. Was the idea of owning a couple of days of the week, which I thought was the coolest. Mm. Now uh, we were doing our Station Eleven recap pods mostly on Thursdays because that's when those episodes would get released. So, Thursdays is when you get like new shows on HBO Max. So, that would be in just like that, Station 11. Hacks. Then there's Sunday night. What, what was the other one you said? Hacks. Hacks. And then Sunday night is Gemstones Euphoria, the usual HBO Sunday night. I would also argue that earlier last year, you had Fridays when The Matrix would come out or whatever. And you would, so you would honestly have three days where the eyes of the TV movie watching world would be kind of directed towards this. It's kind of an interesting new wrinkle. Not even new, because HBO always had Sundays. But in this world where we're like, okay, do people want to binge something? Do they want a mm-hmm. week-by-week thing? This uh, this carving out little days of the week is a really interesting programming strategy.
2: I agree. And before I respond in full, let me say, you mentioned what we talked about last week with Netflix. I just want to do a, a quick correction I should have done at the top of the show. Someone pointed out to me that in our conversation last week about why Netflix is doing what it's doing and the money it spends... I I named a figure for an episode of scripted television that was totally off base. I said that a scripted episode of television could cost $2.5 million. Let me just say that I have made 10 episodes of television all of which cost more than $2.5 million. I don't know why I pulled that number out. Incorrect. Okay. Episodes of TV could cost $10, $15 million if you're making like a 30. franchise yeah. show. Yeah, right. Um, and if you're if you want to play, you know, more in excess, including the Shabu Shuba album, like whatever it is, like no, that. when you get into
0: the deep cuts, that's where the come on. that's where the money comes.
2: If you listen like thieves, you better be prepared to pay for it. Um okay, to your point. I thought that was really interesting too about the days of the week, because as certified old heads, we used to treasure, yeah, HBO Sunday night, NBC Thursday nights. Um, that mattered that sort of you could orient your week around it and it was something to look forward to. I candidly didn't really notice that this was happening mainly because the streaming wars have kicked off so noisily. Um, and it felt. Especially as streamers jumped in, not only with different release strategies, like dumping it all versus three and then weekly, it felt kind of like there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. This isn't true, right? Mm -hmm. Like, these streamers are carving out nights the way Disney has carved out Wednesdays for its properties. Um, An article like this helps helps bring it into focus. And I think that is actually, to your point, really smart. Like, not just the choosing Thursdays as a available night to choose, but also then having movies on Fridays because we're sort of preconditioned to expect that. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense and it goes a long way towards establishing a relationship with a brand. And I know that sounds also kind of weirdly old-fashioned, if not like, you know, uh, overly capitalistic. But one of the, I think, hurdles in this new streaming era has been how do you take... A average consumer's relationship with, say, NBC, which mm-hmm. maybe means less than it used to, but I think there are certain associations we make, whether it's Saturday Night Live or the existence of Thirty Rock, the building, let alone the show, or the Law and Order franchises or whatever, and make it that, but also Peacock. You know how do we how do we continue this, and and of what value are those connections? This begins to humanize your relationship with these services in a way that I don't think they did before because the services just appeared to be like monolithic. The content was just constantly raining down on you. I also think that within the point you're bringing up is the other kind of interesting slug line from the article, which was somehow this thing that we thought was going to be a major problem for HBO Max, which is what's HBO and what's Max. Yeah. Might actually have worked out for them. One is that they are not They're still leaning into this separation, and maybe it's a positive, as you said, Max Originals Thursdays, HBO Originals Sundays. That's a point of distinction that has turned into a positive because it means they have two days and of HBO new content.
0: And HBO has selectively leaked into Mondays. I think that um, mm-hmm. when I last looked, I think the David Simon show, We Own the City, that's coming is going to be a Monday they, show. Like they've, I think, I May the, Destroy You is Mondays, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, HBO, like every so often, they act like it's new every time they do it. But like there were a couple of years ago, they were like, oh, now we're, Forming a beachhead on Monday and bored to death is going to anchor it. Well, right, <laughs> they gave up that beach. Um, shout out, shouts to Dunkirk or whatever. They, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't hold that particular sandy atoll. But uh, you know, they they do that sometimes, and they and I imagine they'll continue to. But the other thing from the the puck piece that you're referencing that was interesting was the first slate of max originals or just the existence of max originals clearly caused enormous consternation within the building where the people like the 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 the, honestly the hastily retired once this stuff started to come out um president of hbo richard plepler like this was anathema to them right this idea we're going to dilute the brand by not only bringing on big bang theory and friends but also just having different originals spearheaded by a different creative team that creative team is now gone casey bloys has consolidated it but some of the stuff that predated his takeover of the creative reigns clearly has paid big dividends, right? As evidenced in this article, which is that HBO, you know, was the crown jewel box of TV, but really lagged in certain sectors of the audience that maybe didn't matter as much when it was about adding to your cable bill, but definitely mattered when it came to attracting and keeping subscribers to a large service. And in the Julia Alexander piece, she talks about how particularly with women, there was a deficit of viewers.
0: Yeah. And And then you, and then you offer up sex lives of college girls, um, flight attendant and just like that. And gossip girl, that is that. I mean, she makes the point. It's something that HBO wasn't offering, you know? And that's (laughs) kind of where we were talking about with Netflix, where it's like, I don't really know. Like we were, I was like, you know, is Netflix ever going to do the prestige water cooler drama anymore? They do Mm -hmm. it in movies, but it seems like in TV they've, frequently they've seen doing lost interest in that kind of show, the morning show type, like flashy, like we got this person on the, you know. And HBO actually has sought out to make of like a kind of more diverse offering of what they can do while still somehow kind of like generally speaking, high quality.
2: A lot of things that they did that were really got a lot of head scratching have worked out, including the including Jason Kolar's decision last year to just A year and a half ago now to put all movies on hbo max it worked i mean is is uh um christopher nolan ever going to forgive him no but one thing we learned from this article is just uh last year hbo and hbo max had 38 million subscribers between them this year they have 74 million Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's a pretty significant significant increase and to your point like It's one thing to be a company where you're like, well, we just have the best of the best. So we know everyone else is doing big, uh, genre uh, entertainment, but we do Game of Thrones, which is the HBO version of that, which in their minds is the best possible version or the one that, you know, people who don't, who didn't read Tolkien will like this. But if you're doing a larger service where the goal is to keep people paying and keep them in your ecosystem, it doesn't make sense for when the viewer finishes Game of Thrones. You need those boxes on the bottom of the screen saying, finish that, you might like this. And so doing this corporate merger stuff that maybe feels tacky to talk about if you, you're you used to the old HBO, now they have like six DC properties they can tell you to watch. You know what I mean? And yeah. like that, it didn't used to be organized that way and it's clearly working. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, you, in the in her piece, Julia recounts this sort of exchange that Plepler and John Stanky had when I think they were doing kind of either a town hall or some sort of press conference. And Stanky, who was, was you know was in charge of AT and T, and Plepler was in charge of HBO, and they had this exchange where they were talking about, do you want to own hours of the week or days of the week? You know, like, and it was essentially that was going to be the pivot that HBO was going to have to make to 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 scale up and start taking more and more uh hours of the week for for their their audience, and um, because and then Stanky said basically because it's you know. Still down at the end of the day, it's about making money. And Plepler actually said, "Well, we do make money." And Stanky said, "Not enough." <laughs> and I think not enough is it's kind amazing. of driving all of the anxiety around the creative arts right now, and or at least pop culture arts. Like I, I, I had this feeling when I was watching the Sundance movie that I watched. I watched this Osgar for Hardy movie on Friday. This called The Hero. Awesome, to watch that. That, awesome, That's movie. on Prime, right? Yeah, and. I I watched both of these films and I I don't know anything about the...
2: (laughs) Love to watch my tourist Iranian films on Amazon.
0: But I don't know anything about the economics of a hero or worst person of the world. Right. But it it was interesting to watch these films and juxtapose them with the recent round of especially awards time promo that's been going on for a lot of like the biggest Hollywood names. So I listened to Bradley Cooper. He was on The Business with Kim Masters. And he was like, I have to think of like a different way to make money outside of movies because like the kind of movies that I like to make are disappearing. And Ben Affleck said the same thing. He's like, I don't think I'll ever have another movie open theatrically because I'm not going to be Batman anymore and I don't want to do those kinds of movies. And there's this kind of like, I'm walking out here, I got my palms out. I'm like, what the fuck is happening to the thing that I love? And I'm like, can you guys just do this but just not expect that much money for it? Because... <laughs> Nobody is telling Asgar Farhadi or Joachim von Trier that like, well, there's no Batman in your movie, so we're not going to fund it. Somehow they're getting these movies funded. They just may not make a huge amount of money doing it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a reckoning that's come to anyone who's worked in any Aspect of the media over the last 10, 20 years, there used to be one way of doing it and one level of expectation of what you would receive for it. And then that's changed and it seems weird or actually that's the American workforce in general, right? But it's weird to apply it to like I used to make $20 million a movie, Affleck, like that's a weird way to it's a weird lens with which to consider the declining value of the American worker, but it's a 100% part of it yeah I, I you know i i, it's I guess intre- i'm also I,
0: just I'm not, i understand that there is like the labor aspect of it and the like how how we value work has been completely fucked over but there is also the part that like independent movies when we were growing up like it wasn't uncommon to go see a movie at the ritz or something and it was like this was made by a person maxing out a credit card you know Oh yeah and yeah. it's and this that and it felt fresh and alive and exciting and Maybe it would go to Sundance, and maybe that filmmaker would get a budget the next time. And I understand that that middle ground has disappeared. But sometimes I'm like, are we? I don't know. I mean, Bradley Cooper could probably make like a cool small movie if you wanted to.
2: Yeah, I think anybody. I mean, there's there's especially with artists like that. I, I want. I, I genuinely don't want to ascribe bad faith motives to them, and I think that they um, have a right, even just on a purely ego level, to be like, it was cool. To be able to make a passion project and then go to the Chinese theater and have a premiere for it mm-hmm. and know that the eyes of the world would be on it, even if they then turned away because they didn't like it. Like, I, I get that. That's a very paradigm shifting reckoning to go through. And they'll probably feel they feel some sadness or or, or loss at that. It, it is a strange hallmark of this moment that it's never been um, practically simpler to create something, to create content, right? Like you could... I remember a couple of years ago when Sean Baker made Tangerine and they were like, this yeah. was made using a phone. And we were like, what the? And everything could be made using a phone. Yeah, like I, like, so, every... Soderbergh went
0: through that whole thing where he was like, I'm going to make yeah. movies on phones it, and break the distribution model. And like Logan Lucky will like change movies forever.
2: Every day I pick up from my charging pad, a filmmaking device more powerful than David Lean <laughs> could ever dream of. And I use it to play Wordle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so let's let's remember that, <laughs> that we could all we didn't have wordle. Yeah. <laughs> kind of well, Lords of Arabia would have been shorter probably. Um you could you, you we the making it isn't the issue. The thing that no one really understands, this goes back to what we were kind of just sort of, you know, we were just lightly rallying about the future of film festivals a topic which which I'm completely unqualified to opine on, but it's the distribution and the idea or expectation of an audience. That's that's the thing that people have not Quite figured out, um, but you know, the, the, it it just keeps movies. Actually, it's what's weird is from and maybe this is the wrong perspective to bring to it because this is I I am not as embedded in cinematic culture as someone like Sean is, who's who's not just you know watching all the movies, but also talking to the filmmakers and their concerns Sean, and paying o- more attention. Actually, to it's
0: the, a little known fact about him now only sits in directors' chairs, like when. I, when I, I, when it, even like when that. we go to bars and stuff, he's like, I, I actually have to go back to my car and get this director's
2: chair. It's, it's I mean, he's taller in them, which I think, you know, it allows him <laughs> to kind of, um, yeah, I the, sorry, the image of Sean bringing his own seats, to the bar has undone. Me. Oh no, I remember what I was going to say. Um, movies seem really valuable to me in a way, not just because of, but it, but it's just not the same way. Meaning Warner Brothers theatrical slate Probably long term of the last year and a half, more return on investment than their theatrical slate for the previous 10 years. Can we see the proof of that? No, their books are opaque. We don't actually know that. But they Mm -hmm. would release a lot of movies in the old days, meaning like pre-2016, and a lot of them would bomb and they would lose a lot of money on most of them and make a lot of money on a very few of them. All of these movies were actually, this was the most coherent theatrical strategy in the last decade of movie making, probably, right? Like, other than when Disney was like, no, no, we're just going to let Kevin Feige tell us when something's coming out. Oh, that yeah. worked out real well, too. I thought you were going to say,
0: like, when Disney was like, we're just going to pull Lion King off the shelves
2: every, every right. year. <laughs> that was Chapek, right?
1: No,
0: that was, it, young- that was like always the Disney thing, is like, make sure you I, yeah, buy Cinderella young for $80 before they take it out. Like, oh, I that thought him? we
2: just, I thought we figured out that, like, young Chapek was the guy, like, sitting on all the VHS cases for the Jungle Book, being like, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> I control this. Um, but that was your other tattoo. People don't realize this. It was a young, you still had hair then, chapex sitting on a giant throne made of the Aristocats VHS <laughs> tapes. And uh, I, I always appreciated the artistry of it. Anyway, this worked for them in terms mm-hmm. of like doubling the subscribers of their whatever. Um, similarly, Netflix just having movies. I, I don't know what... It, it, Netflix is opaque, but in in another way, they're totally transparent, right? Because if they're still doing it, it's working. They have no sentimentality. Yeah, Yeah. It's not like they don't give shows a, well, we we got along so well, you can have a final season. They don't do that. So them having these indie movies and having just a bunch of them every month, that's really clearly working for them. And if you are making a movie in a certain budget window, you can get bought by a Netflix or an Apple or a Prime and Okay. I guess the
0: tough the tough thing is like that is it though. There is no real alternative. There is not a really thriving independent theater theatrical experience throughout the country, at least not yeah. to my knowledge. And I, I don't know that like you know. I mean, I think you know somebody who would probably be able to speak to this really well is Mark Duplass, like somebody who yeah. has kind of come through this and is now doing work with some of the streamers. I don't know. Maybe we'll have him on and talk to him about it. I'm very curious about it. I something about watching these movies this weekend. I was just like, are we sure movies are dying? Like maybe we.
2: I think Mark would be a great person to talk about because he also has some perspective on what happened with music. Cause he was also a musician yeah. in an indie band. And I, I think maybe that's why I'm a little bit less exercised about it because we saw this happen with music where we were like, Oh, this doesn't run the monoculture anymore. This doesn't matter anymore, but now there's more of it and we can get it. I, I was, there's a poster, um, big poster on sunset for, the other Benedict Cumberbatch movie of the holiday electric season, the el- life, of, electrical uh, life of Louis Wayne, yeah, which he talked a lot about in his um, Mark Maron episode. Sounds pretty good. I think I'll probably will check it out. But little that was a like, little
0: bit of a pugnacious, little little spicy episode, didn't you think?
2: Yes. It was, yeah. We, Mark had some issues with Power of the Dog. He wanted to push back. Yeah, but right? he was also just
0: like, so he, I think that there's just like this really funny thing right now because he's got such a run of amazing actors on. Yeah. Where he's just like, yeah, you know, I I do a bit of acting, you know. Like, oh well,
2: I, if you want to talk about this, I mean,
0: but where are we going? Go ahead. Talk we're talking about, about
2: electrical it. lives, like both of us, like be, be, both of us, you know, became translucent and levitated above the earth when we heard Javier Bardem be like, "So you like uh, you like actors so much? This is why I'm here." <laughs> And Maren's like, I actually won won an acting award in Spain. You yeah. know that festival, and he's like, Yes, of course, it's a beautiful and festival. And Bardem's like, Are we recording a... yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing. And then he just talks
0: about ACDC for like 45 minutes, and they minutes. become friends. That's
2: why he's that's why he's the best. Um, I loved it. I uh, but the only reason I brought up the Cumberbatch movie was, what is that movie? Meaning, into into to whom does that matter? Like, I think by a unemotional metric, that movie is already a success because Amazon bought it and it is available to watch in millions of households around the world. Mm -hmm. So by a uh, financial standpoint, I would say it's probably a success. It's probably at least broken even, or its investors have made some money on top of it from a zeitgeist perspective or the way that we also consider the success of movies. Does it exist? Do you know what I mean? Like that? And and that's, I think where a lot of these things, that's kind of the uncanny Valley where a lot of these things fall. any people making something is always significant and challenging and worthy of celebration the, the, it's just
0: you, you you hit on it though there's like something about the physical experience of this that i think we've probably at least you and i have probably deprived ourselves of or the you know we live in a city that has been um you know is hit hard by covid but it's also like you know the movie theaters have closed mm-hmm. uh, i think it's been it's been a really tumultuous couple of years in, in the town where you would expect the movie business to be thriving no matter what. And I had this experience when I went and saw licorice pizza out in Westwood where I was like, the the line was like down the block and there was also a pinball parlor that they had opened up next to it to like, sort of be as like a, a an additional experience to the movie. And I was like, this is like fucking 2001 coming out in the late sixties. You know what I mean? I, cause like I hadn't been mm-hmm. around like a pant, like a real, like, surge of humanity around a movie other than like a yeah. couple of screenings over the year and there's, there's a really different vibe when you're out there with like the people yeah. who are paying to go to the movies it, it feels completely different than it does when it's like oh yeah um, Matrix came out and it's, it's on HBO Max
2: this still matters to us yeah. and I think to people who are plugged into the value of that experience I, I I talked about it you know in passing on the mic before but like Christmas week was just bookended for me by like two of the most ideal theater-going experiences I could ever imagine. One was seeing Spider-Man, which I loved and it was just joyous to watch the movie but made especially fun by how excited everyone was, including the people who were definitely too young to be doing this but just kept shouting, where's Toby? I had no idea that, you know, Maguire fans really repped like that. And then <laughs> the back end of it was going to see at the the Lemley in Glendale I saw Drive My Car, which was, I think, the best movie of the year. And just the another thing that is not... Um, you can't recreate it that experience, um, partly because I would rather see a three-hour plus foreign language film in a theater with a closed door where I am focused and enveloped and enraptured by it. Like I am appreciating it more. There's no question. That's the great thing about the theatrical experience. But but I I think that sometimes we've been finding ourselves talking around an issue like this because it's very hard to put your arms around what what is missing and what is different. Because here, let me put it in in, in the form of a concrete question, like. There is a, a dimension where Nightmare Alley exists. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What I mean is Oscar award winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro made a movie with Bradley Cooper with a lot of big stars. Rooney Mara is in it, right? Isn't Cate Blanchett in Kate it Blanchett's as well? Cate Blanchett's in it, yeah. It's, it would like to be nominated for Oscars. I, I, have, I have no evidence that this movie exists. Other right. than for the people to whom they already care about. Like, there are people in L.A. who are like, oh, my God, we have to go to the theater to see the black and white cut of Nightmare Alley. I believe this movie is being released nationally in March. Right? <laughs> like, I, I, it's just, it's totally, you can tell me it's all a put on. Right. And I don't mean to discredit the movie. It might be good. I just mean this is just such a weird thing to be talking about because In the scheme of things, the movie exists. It will continue to exist. People will find it. It will be judged by history or by people who have enjoyed it or not enjoyed it. But we're still cramming this into a not just outdated, but now almost completely irrelevant machine of hype. Yeah,
1: and and, I also don't know whether or not people who are much younger than us
0: care about this conversation at all. You know what I mean? Like, I doubt that they're listening to the podcast anyway, but like, I can't tell whether or not, like, where is Nightmare Alley? It's is something that's like really driving a lot of like anxiety or stress among 22 year olds. Maybe they are if they're in film school, you know what I mean? But it was something that was there and now it's not there and like life goes on. Fussing with plastic cards
2: should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go.
1: Ready to find your next favorite podcast? Spotify makes it easier than ever to discover new
2: favorites by previewing short audio clips before committing to a full listen. You can even watch some podcasts with video or just keep playing audio in the background. It's everything you want in
1: one app. Music, podcasts, and audiobooks across any device. Play anytime, anywhere, any way you'd like with Spotify. Try today. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer.
2: Ooh, hold up, smell test. Go ahead, sniff those pits. Now, your bits, feet, toes, come on. (sighs) Ugh, could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use
0: from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... <sighs> shop for
2: Old Spice Total Body deodorant.
0: Let's talk a little bit about TV before we go. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed 45 minutes pinging around before we got to TV, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about 1883 and Vigil, because those are two mm-hmm. of uh, the shows I've enjoyed most watching this year. Uh, 1883 obviously came, started... Um, about six weeks ago. Vigil dropped around Christmas on Peacock. It had been out in England before that. Uh, Vigil, six episodes, really tight military thriller starring uh, Saran Jones and um, Rose Leslie as detectives investigating a murder on a British nuclear submarine. So there's that and show. And Stannis
2: Baratheon, by the way. I
0: mean, the there's the, a the lot of hitters in this show. And then 1883 is essentially Paramount's Dave Kingman home run swing at Launching like a blockbuster sweeping epic that could be like a modern version of Wagon Train or a modern version of Lonesome Dove, whatever however you want to put it. It's a huge sweeping western starring Sam Elliott, Tim McGraw, and Faith Hill. Uh one is built for the longest of long runs. I could see I could see 1883 going up to 1890 if they wanted. And one is a middleweight puncher that's just doing exactly what it says it's going to do when it walks in the ring, which is a bunch of jabs and then knock you out with a finale. I thought Vigil was awesome. I'm not trying to say Vigil is like this transcendent drama or anything like that. It's really, really good. 1883, I'm curious what your thoughts on, you know, you watched the first one. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping up with it. You know, it's very Taylor, but it's also like, I think, quite beautiful to watch and also like a real interesting spin on a story that we've seen before, this sort of like the wagon trains moving west, uh, frontiersman discovery story. So, wh- wh- where do you want to start with these two?
2: Well, I think what I want to start with is just what unites them. We were talking last week about how, um, jazzed we were for FX to bring back Justified, just because we, yeah. have, you know, there's a type of TV show and a type of pleasure neuron hitting televised experience that we haven't felt has been serviced as much. And and it's great to be doing that. And I, for me watching vigil in 1883 together was a reminder that TV is still TV. And you know, you, you, you mentioned home run swings, not every show. That's not just that not every show can be, um, I may destroy you or station 11 or something like that. Not every show should try to be, this is not what the business is. the, the large majority of TV viewers would like something that is well made, well crafted, a little bit better than it ought to be. But again, servicing things that servicing pleasure neurons that already exist, basically mm-hmm. not forging new paths. And vigil, particularly, they're really good at this in the UK. You <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: know, <laughs> you it, mean it, Brits? Yeah.
2: It, 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 I mean, it it is. I joked before that the show was like Chris Ryan Madlibs, you know police procedural murder investigation scotland nuclear submarine like but all the uk procedurals are kind of like that they are by and large better i think than what like broadcast procedurals in america but so what to watch vigil though is to be like yeah All right. Well, okay. Of course. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a, seems like a busy week in the nuclear submarine industry, but okay, I'll allow it. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have to buy in. And then when you buy in, you're rewarded for it. It's very diverting. It's really entertaining. It's really well-made. I I was perusing some of the response that it got in the UK where it was a huge ratings hit at the end of the summer. And my favorite review was just like, this fucking show gets the internal dimensions of a submarine all wrong. (laughs) It's like, can you imagine that? I'm like, would, yeah, I would hope they built a set with taller ceilings, you know?
0: Like, There's this amazing thing where in the first episode of Vigil, I feel like they really did a good job and were very careful to be like, it's very claustrophobic, yes. tight quarters. And then like by episode three, they're like, this is a like, like let's be real. We're not going to make these people like yeah. bang into walls for six hours.
2: Or it's like anytime they go up and down submarine steps, it's the same steps. Like, well, yeah. yeah, why would they build more steps? You know, I, I that's I don't understand why you would get mad about that. So, I really I like the show. I'm going to keep watching it. It's, you know, it, it, it is you you can you could be like, "Boy, this seems implausible that this police detective with recent massive familial trauma involving both water and confined spaces should be put on a submarine."
0: Yes, that I mean Or you're I mean, like I alluded to that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, or you could just be like, "Well, that's a what a week. You know what I mean? Like, I guess when it rains, it pours. What did you think um, of,
0: of Rose Leslie as a uh, detective superintendent or detective investigator, uh, Kirsten Longacre? I, I
2: I think that I there, I don't know if there's a way to say this without sounding like a middle aged creep, but I just mean this profoundly when I feel like we would have had posters of this. <laughs> Detective Inspector on our college dorm room walls because she represents everything that was appealing to us about the wider world. <laughs> like she's Scottish. She's tough AF. She's yeah. Scottish. And yeah, she's awesome. She's awesome. And also that that's the other thing that I really appreciate, not just about UK TV, but about this current moment of TV, especially with limited series, which is just like Rose Leslie has been on, Um, she's been in one kind of costume drama in Downton Abbey. She's been on another kind of costume drama in Game of Thrones. But you could tell that she's pretty thrilled to just use her native Glaswegian accent and just wear like, you know, button down shirts and browbeat people. Like, yeah. it just seems cool. <laughs> and it's fun to see actors be able to flex the muscles they want to flex. The 1883 thing. And I apologize if I am coming at both these shows from kind of like a meta industry. No, that's fine. Macro perspective. Because I, I feel confident saying 1883 is not for me. Right. But. The two things that I found most interesting about it um, were, one, that the marriage of Taylor Sheridan and the larger Paramount CBS Viacom Corporation is so perfect. It is the shows that he makes. I mean, we talked about this briefly with Mayor of Kingstown, but like these are classed up CBS shows. And I mean that with affection. You know what I mean? Like there's... In eighteen eighty-three, I think eighteen
0: eighty-three kind of transcends that. But I, I, I hear what you're I, saying. I
2: think that it can, with its ambition, and it's certainly like it, the way that it's shot. It looks beautiful. It's beautifully lit, and like it. No, I, I don't mean it to 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 tear it down. I just mean that like every character, as introduced in eighteen eighty-three, is like, "Hello, I'm exactly what you think I am." Sure, and sure. enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's cool. There's, but there's not but a single said, moment of surprise in terms of like, oh, he's the, you know, he's oh, a tough lawman. See, that's the thing.
0: A, I, I agree with you. It's like when Sam Elliott shows up, it's we, not like he's he, he not a, a vaudevillian actor. You're like, oh, yes, it is right. a ex-military guy who's lost someone and is trying to look for a purpose in life. It's exactly who I thought Sam Elliott was. Gonna yeah. be. but within the context of the story itself. Right. The thing that I find so exciting about Taylor's stuff is that anything can happen. And it's not anything can happen in right. terms of like big twist this guy dies. It's anything can happen in terms of the scenarios that play out within any given episode, movie, whatever actually feel alive in a very palpable way. Like where you're like, "Oh my god, like this is They've been attacked already or they've decided to leave this person or they've decided that this is how... Ha- it's, it's like the decision-making and the plot points don't feel as familiar as the material can, should, given the fact that it's a wagon train show.
2: Can I can I speak to why I think that is? I think, and this is what remains the most interesting point to me about all of it, which is we have never seen uh, a tour television like this. And I don't mean in terms of like someone with a very specific vision. I mean someone there are only two people who can make shows entirely alone, and then they will be aired by a major corporation at this point. Sam: Taylor Levinson. Sheridan.: What's that?
0: Sam Levinson.:
2: Taylor Sheridan <laughs> and Tyler Perry. Right. They are on their own islands, and they can do what they want, and the networks will air them. And watching 1883, for me, the thing that felt most surprising and often jarring was that there are no notes and there's no one else in the room. And you can tell for good or for ill. For me, often it was a little bit for ill. Like Mm -hmm. there's a, in the pilot, when we meet Tim McGraw and he's single-handedly guns down like a bunch of bandits. Visually, I found it a little incoherent that he's being pursued by six people who are shooting guns nonstop. And then he stops, gets off of his horse and guns them all down. I (laughs) was like, that seems seems (laughs) unlikely. But also it was just like, well, he directed it and it made sense to him. And no one was like, Taylor, where, where are the sight lines? It doesn't matter. It right. makes sense for the story. Similarly, like there's just some like when he picks up his uh, Tim McGraw picks up his family at the train station, and he gets them on a very scenic. He takes a, the scenic route through town where there's a bunch of <laughs> fistfights and assaults. <laughs> the camera lovingly shows the wagon stopping. And then it cuts to them getting out of the wagon. Then it cuts to them going into the hotel. Then it cuts to them turning, going upstairs, and then yeah. turning a corner. I'm like,
0: you get a sense of like, okay. It's on the second floor. I got it.
2: Yeah. I was like, that's cool. So I could (laughs) retrace my steps to their room. Like there there was no one being like, Taylor, we get that they made it to the hotel. You could show them. I like it.
0: I like, I like how deliberate it is. I'm making a joke about it. But
2: no, I'm I know, making, but it, I'm very sincere that you rarely get to see something, and I'm sure that there are many, there are good things. I brought, I brought up some funny examples, and I apologize; it was disrespectful because this dude's No, 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 no. Dude, you don't have to apologize. What I
0: mean is, I actually think that there's a reason for that specific thing—the sight lines and the, the the wagon train, uh, fight or the wagon fight. I, I, I'd have to go back and look at it, but
1: right.
0: big, big sightline guy, I know. But oh, yeah. the one of the things I really like about this show is how it is stressing. That the major things that would have been mm-hmm. facing these people, were they were you living back in the 19th century and going from Texas to Oregon or wherever they're going, or Montana, I guess eventually, because it's a Yellowstone thing, is disease, mm-hmm. the land itself, you know, and just like the actual like natural deterrence that would be existing there, aside from bandits and whatever else. I often think about like how incomprehensible it is to like. What they, what, what people must have done, like when they were just like, we're essentially going to fucking walk from Texas to Montana to find a house. Yeah. Like you and I could like be like, it would st- I don't want to be here, there, but like we could go to Dubai tonight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you, and if you want to go to Dubai, are you, you just asking? Gotta, you got to tell me, okay?
2: But are you asking? Let's go. The,
0: the like the fact that they're like they get off the thing, they go up the. Th- The steps. They go into the saloon. They go up the stairs. They go into the room. I think it creates this like this whole thing was very arduous. Like there was no elevators. There was no.
2: I appreciate that
0: valets. There was no anything. Like it's like every.
2: (laughs) He does one up. I mean, I got a lot of this from. It's similarly. It's a similar reason why I loved uh, Lonesome Dove, which we talked about at length last year, which tracks a similar journey, two hundred
0: pages or whatever. Yeah.
2: Also, as we learned, I think we talked about this in our podcast that you know, Larry McMurtry wrote Lonesome Dove and then was like, oh, right. I forgot about trains. Like he <laughs> forgot trains existed. And so a li- I felt like there was a little bit of a subtweet at Larry that so much of 1883 where the guys are like, we don't want to go and then like go on this journey with you, Sam Elliott, and then have to like spend the winter in Oregon. He's like, I'll send you back on the train. Yeah. Like, oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> um, I did have one. The one that I did want to pick was for people who haven't watched 1883 Sam Elliott's character has been hired to lead a a, a journey of, of immigrants, German immigrants. Yeah, of, of right. German immigrants who would like to settle. And he, when he meets them in the 1883 pilot, he gives them a really hard time. Yeah. Really hard time. They've overpacked. They don't know about guns or poison ivy or anything. They it's don't like Herb
0: Brooks with the 1980 U.S. hockey team.
2: Yeah. I have to say, Chris, these immigrants have already traveled Over 5,000 miles to get to Fort Worth, Texas. I just feel like they deserved a little more respect. You know what I mean? That is so far. Do you understand? Like they brought all that luggage from fucking your, I Googled Bavaria to Fort Worth, okay? It is 5,172 miles where they brought their armoires and their whatever. And then this one dude is like, you are dirt you know nothing of what we do here? Show some respect. I mean, that's far. <laughs> you you I get wanna, that the last few miles are tough.
0: You feel like he he didn't have a robust enough customer service policy.
2: I feel like he yada yada the Atlantic fucking ocean.
0: <laughs> that
2: wasn't easy to cross I feel mean, like dudes
0: who fought in the Civil War kind of like, they started at that. And then,
2: you know. It, it's true. Also, and I, I this might be a small spoiler, but like there, there is a thing in the pilot where he's just like, not a single one of you Germans speak a word of English. And they're all like nine. And then the one guy, the one guy has some like little, little bit, little bit of smallpox on his back. Yeah. And he's like, please, this is fine. This is nothing. I promise you. I will go with you to Oregon. It's nothing. It's a rash. All of a sudden he gets real fluent. And I think that that actually is how the human mind works.
0: Oh, that you could just like learn to speak English when you realize you're a danger. If a
2: dude dude has just told me, go find a nearby river, lie (laughs) down next to it and die quietly. I could speak fucking Sanskrit. You know what I mean?
1: Like I, I instantly. To, I, I lo- instantly,
0: I love, I love, I, I kind of want you to just keep watching just for the challenge. What I obviously I? love it, but like I almost want to. I, so I would also say that, like Yellowstone, eighteen eighty three's pilot is the most um deliberative, I guess, or or, or slow paced element of it. Like once you, once they get out of town, and now that the wagon train is moving, I, I find it to be quite propulsive.
2: Yeah. No, I mean the. Sh- it's not not I mean, stuff happens. You know, yeah. It it, it starts with something happening that we're going to get to get to later, I guess. Um, yeah,
0: well, we could talk about. It. We. Well, I mean, I'm sure people are either checking it out, but like, I wouldn't mind checking back in on it. I, you know, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you liked Vigil, and I'm, I, I'm glad you watched these.
2: I like Vigil. I, I I guess the thing that that I wanted to say was, I I, I don't think it's unlike unlike many people here in this um, nightmare alley loving town of Hollywood, California. <laughs> I am not perplexed by the popularity of the Taylor Sheridan shows. Like, oh, it is yeah. not it is not surprising to me. I'm not watching it, like, trying to crack a code. Like, there was nothing in the 1883 pilot that made me think, well, how is this connecting the Oh, America? my God. You know? It's, it's so it's, that is a biz- it's a
0: fucking, yeah, it's incredible.
2: It's a bizarre act of probably, I guess, ego-driven navel-gazing to be like, hmm, if only we could understand why heroes in the old west played by the biggest country music <laughs> stars of their generation
0: and sam elliott
2: <laughs> with guns and horses like i what's the problem here of course um, it's successful good on them
0: you did it man you came through <laughs> today uh i want to say thank you to kaya McMullen, but i really want to say thank you to andy greenwald wow when he's counted out that's when he's strongest who
2: counted me out i don't
0: know i think you counted yourself out i think you need to go you go look yourself in the mirror and you be like don't doubt me again
2: I, You know what this was like? This and then you got to check
0: yourself for smallpox because I'm leaving you behind <laughs> if you, if you uh, ever do this to me again.
2: L- last night when we, yesterday afternoon we were, we were texting when it looked like Tom Brady was going to win the game and we were texting back and forth about future podcasts. It was a little bit like when the other Pinkerton dude comes up to Sam Elliott sitting in a field holding a gun to his head <laughs> and he's basically like, I see what you're doing. I respect it. But if you're going to do it, do it quickly because I don't want to dig a hole At nighttime. That's what you were like (laughs) to me on the texts about today's podcast. And 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 you know, I I motivated you properly. We saddled up.
0: Thanks to Kaya. Thanks to Andy. We will be back on Thursday. Thanks for listening
2: to the watch. We'll dig another hole then.